Good Morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambach, welcoming you to the January 5th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Happy New Year, dear listeners. We made it out of 2020. If you've listened to any Ask a Leader shows, you'll be assured that my guests and I are dedicated to the proposition that we're in this together, hot mess and all. Good gracious, I hope we do you listeners proud in this new year. Today, my guest is Curtis Morley, a serial entrepreneur from the Salt Lake area. He's launching a book entitled The Entrepreneur's Paradox and How to Overcome the 16 Pitfalls Along the Startup Journey, published by Mango Publications. I'm giving him the whole hour. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Curtis Morley. He's the founder and CEO of The Entrepreneur's Paradox, a book about which is the focus of our time together today. Curtis is also the director of the Collert Initiative on Technology at the University of Utah. A serial and kind of breathless entrepreneur, Curtis is the owner of Legato Media, was formerly the president of eLearning Brothers and has founded many more other companies. Curtis has been recognized as the Reed Smoot Entrepreneur of the Year, Utah Business Magazine and Utah Valley Magazine's 40 Under 40, Big Business and Technology Award, Best Technology, among others. Curtis serves on several boards and advisory committees of corporations, universities, and nonprofit foundations. He completed his undergraduate work at Utah Valley University and served as a Latter-day Saints missionary in Japan and Minnesota. He comes to us today from what is, I believe, in, lovingly referred to as Silicon Slopes, just south of Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Curtis Morley. Thank you so much, Claudia. I'm honored to be on the show today. Oh, please. A pleasure and honor is mine. I want to congratulate you on your latest feat, this new book just coming out. I mean, we're, we're speaking right ahead of the actual launch. Curtis, I'm just going to say it's equal parts business manual, life skills manual, and motivational speaker. Was that sort of what you're turning over in your mind about you wanted to cover all those kinds of bases? Uh, I'm glad you identified that because in business, there's really two aspects. There's the business itself, and then there's entrepreneur the, as the person. And so there, those two pieces need to be in balance. And so, yes, the, the book, The Entrepreneur's Paradox, was written in the vein of, I want to help people become more business savvy, get more business acumen, but I also want to help them in their own lives to step up and become the leader of their company. And um, a big part of my motivation was that the book talks about the 16 pitfalls that most entrepreneurs make. They are typically not doing these things or doing them wrong. And the way I know that is because I have a whole lot of personal experience of making those mistakes myself. And so the motivational part of the book that you see is that um, I know it can be done and I've seen it done. And with the principles applied that anybody that makes the choice to become an, an entrepreneur 
um, with that indefatigable drive has the ability to succeed if they'll apply the principles. And the timing really works, I think, uh, elegantly. It's a New Year's resolution to read this book and, and of course to talk about it today. So I wanted to have you give us some insight about your target audience. I have some takes about that. And I'm wondering, Curtis, I'm, I'm, your, I'm your editor <laughs> at this late stage, but I wanna talk about whether the business term, maybe you could use the term enterprise as well. And you're capturing more than just saying business. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that would be appropriate. So I'm also thinking in terms of the academic community that where I'm literally surrounded, that they are called upon to be more entrepreneurial. And so that's, I'm thinking of academics as in a kind of an enterprise, but they need to be more entrepreneurial because even before the pandemic, there are ways that they need to step up and sort of amplify the presence of their academic settings in a broader community to, to support and sustain the, the ivory tower, expand the ivory towers or reach in the community. So when I'm talking with you, I'm thinking in the back of my mind how academics could benefit from lots of these pointers that you bring up. So I want to know, without any snark here, I would like to know what came first, the book or the mountain trek? <laughs> You've done your research. That's wonderful. Um, so it's funny because I wrote the majority of the book before I climbed Kilimanjaro. So, so I'd written The Entrepreneur's Paradox, um, not, not completely, but probably 75% of the book um, before climbing the big mountain in Africa. They call it the roof of Africa. Um, I then climb the mountain and they, they have a saying that anybody that goes up comes down changed. And as, as I know you've read the book, um, you, can, you can tell that that's, that's absolutely true in my case. And so I came back home, made it, made it down the mountain, came back home and rewrote the book. Oh, Okay, that makes sense. I mean, you had, I, I know the, the trek was in February of 2020, correct? Yeah, right before the pandemic hit. Right yep. before. So, so that explains that uh, it looked like you had a book going, but then there seemed to be a, a, it's a, it's a very large motif. And I promised the author, the guest and the audience, the listeners that there will be no spoiler alerts. There's a lot of nuggets that are very intriguing, so everybody can just get their book. So at the core of this book, Curtis, is a paradox. So that's what we're leaning in on for the moment. What in your elevator do you tell people is the paradox? Yeah, so the paradox about entrepreneurship, about being an entrepreneur, is the very thing that gets you into business is the thing that will actively prevent you from succeeding in business. And, and you think, how can that be so? And that, that's why it's a paradox, is that if I can illustrate the point, in my case, as I started my first business, um, I had taken a certification around interactive web technologies, um, was listed as number two in the world for this international certification, ended up writing other certifications. And as people started understanding that, hey, this guy is pretty good at at creating interactive media and websites and other things, they said, hey, will you do it for me? And will you do it for me? And, and I kept 
um, it, the analogy in the book, The Entrepreneur's Paradox, is that, you know, in our normal life, we are, you know, we wake up, we meet the boss, we do our day-to-day -day thing, go back home, rinse and repeat. And every now and then we'll jump over to Entrepreneur Island. We'll take a little vacation over there and it's fun and exciting and there's beaches and waves and coconuts and- It's and, shiny, like you point out. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's shiny. And then we jump back over into the normal world and then we bounce back and forth and a, a few of us um, will actually jump over. And when I say a few of us, there's currently 33 million entrepreneurs in the US. Um, we'll jump over and we'll make permanent residence there. And um, in my case, that's exactly what happened is I, I said, you know what, I'm, I have this skill and I have this passion around creating interactive media and websites that have never been built before. And people respected it and they loved it. And, and that was the reason that my business wasn't succeeding. And you think, well, if you're really good at it and you're building these amazing things, then why wouldn't you succeed? And that's the paradox is that I had to make a very conscious decision to break free from the paradox, meaning I had to stop being the best in the world at building a product and start being the best in the world at building a business. And there's a big differentiation. Building websites is a totally different skill set than building a business. And so you are pretty clear on the paradox has never been addressed by any other author in the past. So there, there's, there's some variations of it, sure, um, but definitely not in this way. Okay. So the, I'm going to break down a little some parts that you talk about. And I, I want to put up a business. I'm going to refer to it as Water Widget. I'm not going to leave the, the rest of the details out. But I, and I want to use that as an example to test what you're saying are essential aspects of overcoming the paradox. And you're saying, you know, like, and it's a, it's a fine product and it's, so you talk about the attention span of entrepreneurs. So are they, I'm interested in looking at your target audience. You talked about 33 million entrepreneurs in the country. And uh -huh. then there's some all around the world because they're, it's a very fluid sort of marketplace. So there's how many, there's several billion maybe uh, entrepreneurs around the world. So what is your target for who's to benefit from this book and settle down and read this whole book? Yeah, my target is anybody that is starting a business for the first time or, or maybe second or third time. Like, like I, I shared with you, my in my experience, I, I made some of these mistakes two and three times, um, but it may help to kind of come at it from a different angle. Who it's not for is big business. It's, it's not for the CEO of a blue chimp company. There's, there are, like you identified, there's some key aspects of personal development and ways mm -hmm. to overcome things like fear and imposter syndrome and, and other things. Um, but really it's for, it's for the passionate individual that has this drive to build a successful company, do something that's never been done before and um, is either just getting started or maybe they're on their second or third company, but they're not typically the 5,000 employee company. They're the ones that are in the trenches. They're the ones that are really you know, buckling down and making things happen, um, sometimes in spite of the world around them. Um, and they, they just do it. I, I love the entrepreneurial spirit. And that is the, that's my customers, the, 
the person that really has that fervor, that drive to to make the world a better place with what whatever it is they have their product or service. So to the point of what we were talking about earlier, like the life skill, the motivational part, it really does have a good fit in sort of early adult kind of like a, a reading list for, for people because like what you, and I want you to unpackage a bit without spoiling what the essential items and explanations are in your book, the imposter syndrome. It's, it runs through every arena of life. So it, your book really serves a purpose for a really, really broad audience. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> imposter syndrome is actually built in. It's baked into entrepreneurship. And, and you think, well, shoot, if that's the case, well, why would anybody want to get into it? But um, I, I dive deep into this, this topic about imposter syndrome and how that the natural process of becoming an entrepreneur means that you're someone that is doing something probably for the first time um, in the way you're doing it, in the time you're doing it, with the market you're doing it in. And so no matter what, anybody that was in that position anybody would feel some type of level of imposter syndrome because no one's done it before. No one can be the expert in exactly what you're doing because that is the basis of entrepreneurship and understanding that, that no one is the expert. It's not just you. It's not just you as the business builder. It's, there's nobody that could step into that role and know exactly what to do with the right customer at the right time. Everyone is learning. Everyone is doing it new. And so we actually go in, in the book, in The Entrepreneur's Paradox, we talk a lot about um, how to not just recognize that it's part of the system, but how to accept it and how to be okay with not having all the answers, how to be okay with, with being someone that is learning and why that's a glorious part of the process that you don't have to be the expert, you don't have to be the genius, you don't have to be the superhero that we go through and identify the different, the seven different types of, of imposter syndrome, um, which is really fun. But um, you don't have to be all that. You can just be you learning, trying, and that's enough. That's enough to, to find success. Well, and that's enough. And then uh, the, co the completion is to recognize, as you say in your book, that like on either side of you, there's a pretty high probability you're on either side of you are imposters too. Absolutely. It's so funny because um, <laughs> when I was starting my first business, I was winning awards. I was, you know, filling the trophy shelf. And if you looked at it from the outside, you would have think, oh, this guy's got it all together. Look at this. He's doing so many amazing things. But if you looked at it from the inside, uh, I'm winning awards. And every single one of the awards actually didn't decrease the imposter syndrome. It increased it because now I had a higher standard that I didn't feel adequate filling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so all of these awards increased the imposter syndrome, but it also made it so that um, when, when I was filling that imposter syndrome, you know, the outside, it looks like, oh, he's got it all together. The inside, I'm thinking, how am I going to make payroll next week? How, how am I going to, you know, fulfill all of these things that we've signed up to do? All of these stressors that built onto that imposter syndrome. And, and, in my case, uh, I wish there was somebody that had written the book on this. I wish there was somebody that had said, you know what, Curtis, it's okay. You don't have it figured out. It's okay. 
And that's part of the process. And, and as I started coaching and consulting with other entrepreneurs, it's, it's very much so everybody. It's, it's just a prolific part of entrepreneurship is that everybody has at least some aspect of imposter syndrome. And everybody's looking at the other person saying, they've got it figured out, but I'm the imposter. Where the truth is, nobody's got it figured out. And it's okay that we don't. It's really interesting in your book, when you, as you describe this entrepreneurial psyche and the fit in the marketplace, all of those aspects going on, I don't think I saw a reference to the notion of disruption. Was that a conscious non-inclusion or was it just, you don't even think of things as being disruptive. You're talking, you're thinking in other ways. Yeah, most entrepreneurs are disruptive by nature. Um, for example, um, I've got some great friends, entrepreneurs that built the first carbon fiber guitar, um, carbon fiber travel guitar, I should say. Now, a disruptive, disruptive thing. And, and most tech entrepreneurs you know, by themselves are, are disruptive in some, in some way. And so I, I just look at that as a kind of a blanket over entrepreneurship is that everyone's getting in business because there's a better way to do something. There's a better product to be built. There's a better method. Um, and so I look at all of that as, as disruption. It's implied throughout the book, but it's never used. But I hear, I hear disruption in a lot of set business settings. So it's, it's a, in a way, it's kind of a, an elegance of not, not beating us up with actually using the term. So I want to get to the, the refrain you've used. You start early and, re, and it's a refrain throughout the book is about be the business. It's, it's not about you. It's about your business. And when I read that back, my little head is the Colin Kaepernick Nike ad. And if you can recall aspects of that ad, there's a very long form kind of ad as ads go. And he said, don't be the best player be the sport. Was that something you thought about when you were talking in your book? And how, or how did you respond to the Colin Kaepernick Nike ad? Yeah, I, I didn't think of that. No, now that you bring it up, I, I, yeah, believe in something. Just go in there now. Um, it's, yeah, it, it is. It was like a whole lesson in that ad. Yeah, the, for sure. And, and that's, that's one thing, yeah, that we definitely talk about in the Entrepreneur's Paradox is, is the idea that, that as a business owner, um, most people will go in and they'll, they'll assume the identity of the business. And, and that's, um, it comes with that passion, it comes with that drive, but oftentimes they'll actually assume the identity of the business. And there, there needs to be a separation. Um, there needs to be complete passion, complete buy-in. We're burning the boats, all of that, kind of like um, you talk about in the ad. Um, but there also needs to be a separation from the person and the business. And the person, the entrepreneur, is one of the key elements of the business, but the person is not the business. And we go through and we talk about how it's important to separate bank accounts, how it's important to um, not put any personal worth um, into the business, um, things like that, because those are definitely pitfalls that will hamper growth. Um, but it's really important to separate the person from the business. So I'm going to go back to the analogy that you 
bake totally in the book is, or the metaphor of Mount Kilimanjaro. And that it was, I, when I started the book, I was thinking about where is Curtis flying? Is he flying at what, you know, like 70,000 feet? But I thought, no, I got to put that aside. It's not a pilot. You are a hiker scaling a slope which has many different approaches to it. And, and that I'll say, there's a lovely kind of near the end listeners in Curtis's book about uh, somebody who uses a different slope that is revealed when Curtis's ascent is complete. So, so anyway, but it's a matter that you're, it's not a, it's, I think it's, a, it's an interesting inversion that a lot of us try to think about how solving things from a, a perspective of many thousands of feet over you're gonna take, you're gonna lead that mountain hiker and a mountain climber uh, literally on the grade itself. And that maybe that is essential to talking about the work ahead for the entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, the, you know, once we just do decide to make permanent residence on Entrepreneur Island, there, there's a couple steps. One is to get out of the paradox or just to um, make it past what I call the swamp and wrestling alligators. Um, and then once we make it past the swamp, there we look up and it's, it's so fun because in real life, when I do this with entrepreneurs, when I actually have them see past the swamp of alligators that happen to be on this island, then they look up and they see that there's three mountain ranges that are available to climb as an entrepreneur. And, um, and there's only three. And it's, it's a, one of those revelations where they go, holy cow, I never realized that this is where I could go. And I never realized I could reach these kind of heights. And so once they look up, they, they see the, the different mountain ranges, the lifestyle business range, the um, buyer be bought range or the mergers and acquisition, um, and then the IPO. And those really are the three destinations that entrepreneurs can climb to. And um, in the book, you know, it talks about the, the, how the journey itself is part of what makes entrepreneurship glorious. It's part of what makes it enlivening and um, thrilling and hard. It's hard. There's no question about it. Entrepreneurship is hard, but that's what makes it so great is because it is hard. And if it weren't hard, everyone would do it and the success rate would be different. So for those of you who've joined us, I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host of Ask a Leader. And my guest today is Curtis Morley. He's the founder and CEO of the Entrepreneur's Paradox. And I'm gonna just, there the, the title, it's apostrophe S, but you could probably move the apostrophe outside the S and you're gonna capture everybody there. <laughs> and so I wanna then, uh, I want to talk about, since I mentioned that it, it is hard, you're talking about it's being hard and I'm talking about the failure rate. And so I'm, I'm familiar with an enterprise that is fits. It's an outlier. I think I'm going to give it the water widget name to, to encompass the enterprise and the Concern, the traps there are that this person is facing. I'd like for you to maybe do some diagnostic work in this. And it, the motivation of the entrepreneur is to solve an environmental problem. And so it's, and I look for which of those categories that you were just describing, and maybe she's going to buy it. I mean, build it so she can have it be sold later or just keep building it 
so that it would be a, a technology that's adopted. But so she, her trap is, then you talk about how to make ifs and ises that sort of make, make things, flip things, make them positive, make them affirming and make yourself more successful. But in her case, that there's an adoption of her technology problem. And the adoption is stymied. See, I'm using all those negative uh, characterizations. You say, get off of that dime. But there's an adoption problem because the firms that would adopt her technology do not know the regulatory climate. It's an uncertain regulatory setting. So they don't want to adopt because they're not sure there's incentive enough in the marketplace to adopt her technology. So I'd like you to respond to that with the lessons you're teaching us in Entrepreneur's Paradox. So it sounds like her, her big issue right now is figuring out how to get adoption with-, with Correct. And it, it sounds like she's a, a B2B company. Oh so. gosh, I believe that's right, yes. So she's, she's had early adoption and then it plateaued, it stalled, and she's now trying to relaunch her product. So yeah, it would be her business to other businesses. Mm -hmm. As well as there could be, the adopter could be a public authority that manages water because water widget is the sort of the title I'll give her firm. Gotcha. So it sounds like um, she's also selling to public utilities. And she could eventually. She's trying to sort of slow utilities committing to older technology. She is completely disruptive. And so she's trying to address the water footprints, the and energy footprints. She's trying to address all those things. And it's a different kind of sensibility than what you mainly talk about in your book. She wants to solve a big environmental problem and have resilience built into public services in the region, in the state, in the country, in the world. Oh, that's fantastic. Sounds like she's, she definitely has that drive. Sounds like she's got that passion to make a difference and change things in the world, which absolutely describes entrepreneurs. Um, and it sounds like her, her adoption rate is, is the big issue right now. Huge. That's where she is. Without, without knowing her business or without really understanding the details of where she's been and, um, and what she's already tried. The, the first couple of things that come to mind are the, um, I give an example in the book um, that may, may be applicable. You tell me if it is, um, but is the idea of stop building the product and start building the company. And um, one of uh, a dear friend and amazing entrepreneur, um, Scott Severe um, had a company that was, had a very disruptive technology. Um, they were always trying to build more and more and create the best, biggest product. And we went in and we, we analyzed things and um, all of his money was being spent on product development. And I, I asked him, I said, I said, what would happen if you stopped developing the product completely? Just no more lines of code, no more, no more releases, from today on, you stopped. Um, you stopped completely, and it was it was startling to him. He, you know, his eyes were as big as saucers when I said that, and, um, and uh -huh. it was it was very shocking to his system. But um, being a very centered and um, amazing entrepreneur, he said he said, well, actually, we would probably have a viable product for the next year and a half. I said, okay, great. So, um, what would happen? if you took the money that you're spending on development right now and spent that on sales 
And he thought about it and he said, well, well, we'd probably get more sales, very simply. And he said, great. What if you took the, those, those sales dollars and then once you were generating that revenue, you put it back into the product. And um, through this process of looking at what they have right now, where they can go, um, they, they did change their focus. He was humble enough to be able to say, you know what, let's, let's do this. And um, he changed his focus. And instead of hiring more developers and others to work on the product, he hired salespeople and business development leaders and worked at um, getting into companies. And they doubled revenue in one year's time because of this decision and actually got purchased by their next largest competitor because they were so impressed with how fast they were growing. And um, so for water widgets, I, I would, you know, again, without knowing all of the, all of the ins and outs of what they've tried, et cetera, I would probably say, you know, look at really focusing on the business side of things, on business development, on sales, on marketing. If the, if adoption truly is the issue, correct, then, then it's a matter of getting it out there. It's a matter of getting in front of as many companies as possible, having as many demos as possible, um, getting people to understand that what the product really is and, and simplifying that message. So that, that would be my suggestion. How does that fit? Well, it fits. The concern is that she's dealing, the marketplace for her are very traditional. They're, they're very, they have antibodies against, they have allergies against the kind of disruption that she is posing to the sector. And so there's traditional thinking. It's very hard for them to think about. I mean, it, it, will, it will change the way water would be managed. Potable water, for instance, would be managed. So that they sort of are, they're threatened by that disruption. And there is an enormous power structure that budgets the water budgets the infrastructure of moving the water all over the country. You know, we could look in terms of the Colorado River Basin. And so there, the inertia to get adoption is so intense, it's so deep that it's sort of like they're at opposite ends. There's the hyper-traditional and the hyper-disruptive. And so I guess that's, that's the trough she's in is that the, for getting adoption of her product. So I, I see more nimble kinds of enterprises that you describe in your book, and th we're talking about a really unwieldy kind of oppositional response to her disruptive product. Yeah, yeah. I, I personally have um, a lot of experience with that. Um, my second company was a digital sheet music company. And- Is this um, the e-learning? Um, no. It's oh, it's okay. Legato Media. And- in that company, there were so many people that said, we can't do it. It's impossible. Um, people that were just upset because we were wasting all this money trying to do, create, and this was back in the day, create a digital sheet music that you can play and kind of follow the bouncing ball. You can take parts in and out. You can change the key and it will all rewrite on the fly. Um, and it was very disruptive. And there were so many people that said it couldn't be done, um, but we did it. And um, with, with any disruptive technology, the, the book that comes to mind immediately is mm -hmm. it's Clayton Christensen. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Clayton, but um, The Innovator's Dilemma is the book that I would highly suggest for her um, because it talks about how companies disrupt entire industries. 
and it talks about, um, gives case studies around the steel industry or others that are, um, that have been overturned. And, and it's a natural process of business. The business evolution of, of the world continues to have disruptive technologies. And, and it's not only very possible, but it's an important part of how we evolve as a civilization. And so I would absolutely offer her some motivation, offer her some you know, congratulations on tackling such a big challenge, but it, it is possible. It, it absolutely is possible. I, and, I have and sorry, and so, and describing her, uh, the water widget, it, in a way there's a kind of fourth column in how you're organizing where the business is going. And if it's, it's like solving a global problem, you know, it's, it's, she is just so motivated by that end game. It's just to make, to tighten the water and the energy footprints and how the resources managed. So it's, I, it's, I see that as a fourth one and you might consider that at, at some point because that, that sector exists or that, that realm exists in entrepreneurial. Yeah, one, one thing that just came to mind um, that may help your friend is, is getting a big hitter on board, um, getting the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or um, getting somebody that has a lot of clout on board with the idea and focusing on, on getting that person and then, and then hitting the PR machine and getting as much press release about that as possible. That, you know, if she has the backing of someone like uh, Bill Gates, then all of a sudden that gives so much clout and um, just gravitas to what she's doing that it would be hard for others not to adopt it. And that, and encapsulate that, I won't try to overemphasize this particular scenario, but it does help us illustrate a bunch of points. But she, she has noticed though, that in Silicon Valley, where the venture capital is in large <laughs> supply, that there is, with that, that capital is chasing other kinds of capital. But it's, it's a, you talk about the what if and the what is, and I'm, I'm stuck in the what if with that, but, but the venture capital is looking for enterprises that they can own and control larger and larger sort of sectors. So it's, she needs to look entirely different place than in Silicon Valley, because they're, they're not chasing that kind of disruptive technology. There, there's not interest. She's immersed herself in that. So I, I don't know if you have a, a quick response to that as we continue to look at other aspects of the entrepreneur's paradox. Yeah, I, I think getting a market fit is critical. And if that means, you know, instead of working with Silicon Valley or Silicon Slopes, you know, investors, that it rather means working with philanthropic organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a great transition, a, a great shift for her business. So I like that you debunk multitasking. That's incredibly important in your book. You want to say a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I was first introduced to the concept by a dear friend of mine, Dave Crenshaw, who wrote the book, The, the Myth of Multitasking. And um, phenomenal book um, based off of several studies, I believe from Harvard, that there, there really is an entrepreneurial ADD. There is... <laughs> It, it happens. It's so, you know, the, the entrepreneur is typically the one with the ideas. They're the idea guy or the idea gal. And they, 
are, have a thousand ideas that are all awesome. They're all fantastic ideas. And it's so easy to jump back and forth. And um, in the book, The Entrepreneur's Paradox, we talk about um, the example of Thomas Edison. And um, if you were to ask anybody, you know, who created the light bulb? They, you know, it's a simple response. It's Thomas Edison, right? Well, it turns out that he was actually the sixth person to invent the light bulb. And there were several others that went before him. The difference between all of the others was that Thomas Edison stuck with it. Thomas Edison went through thousands of examples of different filament types, different bulbs, different ways to light. He was committed to changing the world. And if you think about it, without his dedication, without his commitment, we wouldn't have light. He literally brought light to the world. And, um, and that was because he was dedicated to sticking to one thing until he got it right. And if you look at all the other inventors of the light bulb, because there were multiple, one went on to do um, astrophotography. Um, another went on to um, working with physics and they all said, hey, look how cool this is. And by the way, I'm gonna go do something else. And they let their entrepreneurial ADD kick in and they bounce from one project to the next. And none of the projects got extreme success because they didn't put the time and effort into it to do it right. And most entrepreneurs that I talk to, they say, but I've got so many great ideas. And I say, that's awesome. Let's do one at a time. Let's not try and multitask a hundred different great ideas um, because there'll always be more great ideas than there is time to execute. So among other aspects of serving the entrepreneur's situation, you break down the roles of mentor versus coach versus friends versus peers versus entrepreneur sort support group. How often do you think it gets missed how important a mentor is and what, what is the mentor to an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because if you look at, if you look at the statistics around entrepreneurship, the, the businesses that have a much higher success rate are the ones that either have a mentor or a coach um, tremendously more than um, with, without. And um, so if, if I were to give your listeners a very simple way to, to get them a higher, higher chance of succeeding in business is to find a mentor or a coach. And, and I do distinguish between the two, mm-hmm. um, between the two. A mentor and a coach are very different. A mentor is someone that you probably know personally, someone that's climbed the mountain before, someone that has seen a, a high level of success, probably a millionaire. Um, and- but do you have to know them? Because I'm trying to think, I've, I've been sort of in the background trying to find how, how like an uh, aspiring professional that they're missing a mentor in their life. But, and I'm thinking there is a mentor, couldn't they not be somebody who's out there, who's receptive, who wants to return the favor, pay it forward, and they don't know each other at all, but there's just a good fit. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, one, one thing that when I work with entrepreneurs is I have them write a list of other entrepreneurs that have climbed the mountain before, that have gone ahead, and you know some they know, some they don't. 
And um, I challenge them to take one of them out to lunch every week. So they weekly take out someone that they admire in business, whether they know them or not. Um, and it's, it's really neat, at least in the Silicon Slopes. I can't speak outside of, of Utah, but within the Silicon Slopes, the community of entrepreneurs is so gracious and so willing to give. Um, the, the entrepreneurs that have gone on to incredible success are so willing to sit down with a new fledgling entrepreneur and say, yeah, let's talk. Let me share my experiences. Let me share the hard times with you. Let me tell you what I did to overcome them. And it's amazing what happens when, when there, there's a commitment to that of, of making a very concerted effort to talk with others that have gone before. And, and that's what I did identify as a mentor. Um, a coach would be someone that you typically hire that has, that keeps you accountable. And that's, that's one fun thing about entrepreneurs is that they're typically the top of the, you know, the top of the mountain, they're the top rung. They don't have anyone to be accountable to. A coach is someone that will keep them accountable to their goals, to their growth, to um, applying the proper business principles. And so a mentor is someone that can provide incredible insight, can provide a, a tremendous motivation and, um, and a, a boost in, in drive, et cetera. And a coach is someone that will very tactically get into your business and say, all right, let's help you succeed. And we're going to meet weekly and it's going to look like this, this, and this. So thank you. I want to let those who've just joined us know my guest is Curtis Morley here on Ask a Leader. He's the founder and CEO of the Entrepreneur's Paradox. It is a book that is about to be launched. We're just ahead of that. It's a, a New Year's, not a resolution. It's a new a new era resolution to, to reconsider this. And I keep wanting for listeners as they're following what Curtis is talking about, that we're thinking really broadly about enterprise because I really think he captures so many life skill scenarios that all of us could benefit from. So I'm, I guess I am shilling this book. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I want to talk a bit about other, another thing that gets missed is culture, the culture of the firm. Why do you think, Curtis Morley, culture gets missed so often? You know, it's a matter of, and I'm really glad you brought this up because it's, it's so critical to longevity of a company. It's so critical to long-term success. And, um, and culture is one that is, it's not what you often think. It's not the, you know, there, there's so many magazines that will say the best companies to work for and the best culture and this and that. And they list the foosball tables and the free lunch and the, you know, the, the parental or the daycare, all of those things. But the culture really is, especially in startups, is really starts at the top. It starts with the entrepreneur. And, um, and your question of, you know, why is that missed is because the entrepreneur is typically heads down and driven and going fast and hard. And there, there needs to be, for, for longevity especially, there needs to be a concerted effort to not only start with the right culture, but then maintain that as the business grows. And there's some, there's some inflection points as the business continues to grow 
the million dollar mark is a typical inflection point and 5 million is another um, where certain things happen in the business that have never happened before. And it tries to shift the culture and change the culture. Um, but the culture really is the attitude of the entrepreneur. That's where it all starts. If the entrepreneur is one that really focuses on people um, versus problems, is one that um, believes that it's important to fail and that gives everyone a chance to succeed through failure, you know, then that becomes the culture. If it's, you know, if it's the entrepreneur cracking the whip and everybody get down to business, then that'll become the culture. You know, but it really does start with the entrepreneur. Do you think it gets starts to get dismissed or underestimated when they're being educated and in the sort of the hierarchy of academia or any other hierarchy that the entrepreneur keeps associating with the top down. And I think culture takes up the two directional sorts of contributions in an enterprise. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun because um, some of the feedback that I've gotten from people that have already read The Entrepreneur's Paradox is they say, man, I wish this stuff was taught in business school. <laughs> they say, why, why did we not learn this? And well, in any, in any professional like program in urban planning, in, but even in undergraduate kinds of settings, because the, the hierarchy gets, starts getting baked in any name, the, the kind of field in academics. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because the entrepreneur doesn't come from business schools. Most of them don't, right? Yeah, you look at the Zuckerbergs and Steve Jobs of the world, they're, they're the ones that dropped out. They're the ones that said, I've got a great idea and I'm so passionate, I have to pursue this. And so, so yeah, a lot of entrepreneurs are the ones that just know they can do it and, and put in the work to make it happen, um, regardless of degree or not. So I wouldn't be doing my job in this day. And we're, we're recording this on December 31st, 2020. And at this point, there's a lot going on with the pandemic. And I'd like for you to give us a little insight about ways that businesses can adapt, continue adapt, enterprises can adapt in the time of COVID. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought this up because it's so timely and important right now. Um, I have people ask me all the time, is now a good time to start a business? And I say, absolutely, yes. And the reason why is because anytime there's change, change is another name for opportunity. And we're living in a world that we've never lived in before. We're living, we're doing things that, you know, a year ago, many of us wouldn't have even imagined we would be doing. And because of that, that creates market opportunity. That creates the, the option to go and say, hey, I see that in our, our world today, not last year, not even in February of this year, you know, our world today needs this or needs that. And I can feel that need. And so right now there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. You look at some companies like um, Zoom, which is what we're doing this recording on. Um, they, they were doing okay before the pandemic. They are crushing it now. Um, you look at other companies that are transitioning one of my favorite entrepreneurs, um, her name's Kylie Chen. Um, she runs a global travel company. And you can imagine what's happened with global travel. Now, 
It's she has a travel expedition company. She's actually the one that took took me up to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Okay. And um, and travel basically shut down. And so Kylie could have just thrown her hands in the air and say, "Well, okay, there goes my business. Oh well." But she didn't. She said, "Okay." instead of all the what ifs, what is in my power? What is in my control? What can I do right now? And, um, and so she started adapting and she f- started outsourcing um, dresses and um, other, th- these amazing dresses from countries around the world where she would take these expeditions and she would meet the people. And so she started outsourcing these dresses as travel dresses and they're gorgeous and they, they took off. Um, and then she started doing um, local destination travel. So we can still travel within the country. And so now she's doing um, wonder camps and um, just such a great example of adaptation um, that there's new opportunities. People still want to experience those things. That drive, that desire has not gone away, but it now needs to be in a different method. And so when I get asked that question, well, is it, is it smart to start a business in the middle of a pandemic? I say absolutely yes. There's so many opportunities that you can latch onto and make successful. So I want to put out a thought in living life as an entrepreneur. Aren't those lessons in how we could vary and hence deepen our own experiences? Yeah, yeah. Just kind of like what I said at the beginning of the interview. You know, you can't go up, you can't go up Kilimanjaro without coming down changed. It's the same with a business. You can't become an entrepreneur without becoming changed. And it's a, it's hard and it's grueling. And at times you just want to pull your hair out. And it's also beautiful and glorious. And the transformation that happens when someone makes that choice to become an entrepreneur, that is really a choice to become a different person, to grow through the experiences that are hard to grow through those and overcome those and realize I can do it. And not only can I do it, but I can kill it. I can rock this. And, um, and that, that is a powerful, powerful lesson that can come through being an entrepreneur. Well, admittedly, this is the beginning of the launch of the entrepreneur's paradox. I still want to find out, Curtis Morley, what is also, what else is on your front burner? You know, I, <laughs> I've got a, a very, very audacious goal, um, big, big audacious goal. Uh, I want to, I want to help a million entrepreneurs and, um, and that's, that's huge, but I believe I can do it um, through the book, through coaching, consulting, all of those things. I believe that there's, there's that opportunity and I believe it's needed. I, I believe that that's one of the biggest things that I can contribute to this world is to be able to help entrepreneurs not have to make the mistakes that I made. And if you look back in you know history, back in the day, it used to be that you had to have you know a Warren Buffett or a Rockefeller to you know mentor you and help you become successful. Now there's been so many iterations of successful businesses that there is a formula. There is a formula for success. There if proper business principles are applied, any company can be successful. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a Warren Buffett to, to be the mentor. It just takes what's already known and applying that to business. 
And, and that's my, that's my goal. That's my hope is that I can help, I can help 1 million entrepreneurs to find that success. Do you have targets for demographics or that's really immaterial to you? Yeah. It, it doesn't matter what business it is. No demographics, the, the people, the backgrounds of people. Yeah. It's, it's those starting in the U S um, but those in the U S that make that choice, um, it could be young, it could be old, it could, you know, be New York city or California or Utah. The important thing is that they make that choice that they're going all in on starting a business. Well, I so thank you, Curtis Morley for your time today. I want to make sure that listeners find you in a program with my KUCI radio colleague, Ash Kumra, who hosts Entrepreneur Nation on, I think for the winter quarter, it will be still Tuesdays, five to 6 p.m. The entrepreneurial realm is really his domain. And it's been my good fortune that I had a chance to work with Curtis Morley's agent and talk about presenting this. My hope was to make the broadest possible application of of what this entrepreneurial world is all about. And I'm gratified that Curtis went to all those realms with me. Thank you, Curtis Morley, for your time today on Ask a Leader. Thank you so much, Claudia. It's truly been an honor. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to wish you, Curtis, a happy new year. Happy new year. My guest was Curtis Morley, and he's the founder and the CEO of Entrepreneur's Paradox. It's also an idea. It's also a book about to be launched. Stay looking for that title as it's in the marketplace shortly. Thanks again, Curtis. Thank you. And um, reader or listeners can actually pre-order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble right now. So it is currently available. So one could order it from Mango Publishing too. that's my wrap. For next week's show, Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines, president of the National Women's Political Caucus in California, a previous guest is going to return. She will have a lot to take stock of women of color in the electoral process all the way through tomorrow's Georgia runoff election for two U.S. senators. One more reminder for Georgia voters or friends of Georgia voters to show up. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Masks? We have to stay on it if the numbers a new COVID strain haven't already convinced you. <laughs>